In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Richie, my friend that I quote often says, guys don't change from light, they change from heat. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Hey, Men in the Arena Army. I salute you. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, your guide and host of Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men. My goal is to lead you into your best version in that stress bubble of life and beyond. You know, I read a ton of books for this podcast, and I read three books in the last two weeks, and uh, I'm really excited about this guest. I've never heard of him before. He sent this book to me in the email, in the in the mail, and I thought, oh, okay, another book. Honestly, this is one of the best books on marriage I've ever read. It's 135 pages. I would put this right up there with Emerson Egrick's book, Love and Respect. Now, Emerson's book was like 275 pages. This is a lot easier to read, a lot simpler. This guy's not a pastor. He's a business guy. He's an entrepreneur. And uh, this is a great, I'm serious, if you're going to add this book to your li- a book to the library on marriage, you need to, you need to order and add this book. And uh, I'm really excited to jump into this podcast, man. This is my new friend, Reggie Campbell. He is 69 years old, lives in Roswell, Georgia with his beautiful wife. They just celebrated 50 years of marital bliss. His marriage is so easy. Anyway, uh, Miriam is her name. And Reggie is an experienced investor, entrepreneur by trade, having been involved in the founding of 15 companies. He's written four books, including our topic for today, What Radical Husbands Do. He speaks on mentoring marriage and the marketplace ministry. He's passionate about mentoring younger men. In 2007, Reggie founded Radical Mentoring to help encourage and equip mentors and churches to build disciple makers through intentional small group mentoring. And so far to date, they have worked with 300 churches and 11,000 men have been mentored so far. It's probably 11,008 since I got this email. But Reggie, it's great to have you on the show, man. <laughs> it's great to be here. Thank you for that incredible buildup. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, when I when I saw that, I was like, it kind of stopped me. I was like, wow, that's really, really impressive. And so, hey, before we get into some of the interview questions, you want to take a few minutes and just share uh, some pertinent components of your story with our audience? Uh, yeah, in, in essence, I've lived two lives. I lived age uh, zero to 33, uh, 
for myself, basically trying to please my dad. <clears throat> I didn't matter to my dad. Uh, when my, my wife left me for a brief time in, uh, in 1983 and said, uh, I don't know you anymore. And uh, she left me with the kids who were 10 and 7. She said, while I'm gone, get to know your kids. So uh, that night, I walked, I'm raising the church, but didn't know Jesus, walked out in the backyard of my, of my uh, house and looked up at this big September sky and said, okay, Father, I'm, I'm yours, and uh, surrendered, you know, went all in for him. And uh, a week later, she uh, called to check on the kids, and I, I told her they were still alive. And she said, uh, and I said, I, I need to tell you something, though. I've surrendered my life to Christ, and uh, I think if you come back and give me another chance, there's going to be, you may actually end up with a husband you thought you had to begin with. And she said, well, I'll come back for one day. And so she came back and we talked and at the end of that day, I said, have about one more day and then another day. And so I am in the 37th year of day-to-day contracts <laughs> and I'm negotiating for a weekly deal. It's not, it's not uh, going too well. She says, it's not broke. Why fix it? <laughs> I mean, I hate to be so spiritual so fast, but I'm just telling you, I, I lived a life, a godless life. And even though I profess Jesus, I didn't know him, and uh, sad. The worst part is he didn't know. Me. <laughs> he didn't know me. He knew me, but you know what I mean. It's yeah. like my sheep hear my voice, and I didn't hear his voice because I wasn't listening. But uh, comes to the pearly gates, it's more more important for him to know me than for me to know him. If you know what I mean. Yeah, for sure. That's a deep theological question over there. <laughs> but but anyway, since that uh, since that uh, event, I've. And for him, I started started pouring into the young guys individually, one on one, and uh, did that for 15 years or so. And uh, and in 2001, I decided to uh, to group some guys up, just really to save time more than anything else. And uh, and so I started pulling, inviting eight guys a year to be in a group, and I meet with them once a month. And uh, they had to read a book. They had to memorize a couple of scriptures. They had to do some relational assignments uh, to build their marriages, um, other things in addition to that. And uh, so I did that for like seven years. Every year I had another list of guys who wanted to be included. I have They have to write an application, and I pray over who I'm going to pick. And uh, so seven years into that, I was awakened in the middle of the night, and uh, and this thought came to me, and this is like, you're just doing what Jesus did. Mm. And, I, and I ran to my computer. I was 57 at the time. Of course, I didn't go immediately to my computer. I went to the bathroom first because at 57, the first thing you do in the morning is you go to the bathroom. At 53. <laughs> yeah, same there. Huh? <laughs> so I sat in my computer, and I said, well, tell me what, what did Jesus do? And Son of a gun, I, and the first big thing was Jesus mentored his guys in a group. And I was like, how did we miss this? I mean, we everybody in the world thinks mentoring is this one-on-one deal, you know, sitting in a coffee shop with the mentee setting the agenda, uh, usually issue of the day driven, not, not long-term uh, intentionality. And uh, so I wrote a book called Mentor Like Jesus and started this organization just to, to equip men and churches to do what I've been doing around my dining room table uh, now for 19 years. And that's how Radical Mentoring got started. 
So that's my life story and ministry, my, my uh, testimony and my uh, organization all in one fell swoop. Well, it was fun reading your book because I found myself thinking, what does this guy believe? He's kind of hiding it from me. You were saying all the things I believe, but you weren't saying it. And then you got to the end of the book and you shared your testimony. It's like, there it is. There it is. <laughs> so yeah. That was good. Well, so I, I, yeah. I wanted to create, I wanted to create some tension. Uh, one, I wanted the book to be uh, uh, applicable and embraced by people outside the faith. Yeah. Cause I wanted to build a tension that said, how do you do this? And then unpack in the end, well, you can't do it, but through Christ, he can do it through you and he can give you, the self-control and discipline to, to be this kind of husband. So that was the strategy. Well, you know, to use a word that you seem to love, I try to make, you know, I think of Christianity very simple. It just takes radical devotion to Jesus Christ. You know, he's the one who made you. He knows you better than anybody on the planet. He loves you better than anybody on the planet. He wants you to win more than anybody on the planet. So why guys are so stubborn or, or, or take this thing and, and make it so spiritual that they can't even understand it? It's pretty simple. Radically commit your life to Jesus, and he will change the game. He's a game changer. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, yeah, I really appreciate the simplicity of your book. And so, well, let me, a couple more questions about radical mentoring. So 300 churches, that's a lot to me. You know, that's amazing. And then you said 11,000 guys. So let's say I'm a pastor of a church and I want to bring you in and your organization into my church for our pastors listening to the show. How does that work, uh, Reggie? Uh, we've made it so incredibly simple. Uh, you just go to radicalmentoring.com and click and click and click. And basically everything you need uh, to, to, I mean, we've got everything pre-cooked. Uh, how, how, how to pick mentors, how to uh, recruit and enlist mentees, all the, the track is set. We call it a track because it's not really a curriculum, but it's, you do nine, nine sessions or 12, depending on your appetite for a nine month, kind of a school session or school uh, calendar or 12 months, you know, from, from January through December, but everything in there, everything's there. You can download it. Uh, and it's all for free. And what we've 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 been supported and continue to be supported by men and churches who have been through radical mentoring. So, you know, a large church uh, over in South Carolina, where your uh, your uh, comment came in from from a, a listener, largest church in that state is New Spring, and they have fourteen campuses, and they have radical mentoring going on all their campuses. They've had over eleven hundred men just in in that uh, in that church. Wow. go through. And uh, after they launched it, they came back and gave us a huge donation uh, with the idea of paying it forward. It's like, we can't pay you back, but if we donate to you, then you can take this because this has radically changed the culture of our church. We want every church to have this kind of culture for its men. And uh, so that's how we're funded. So everything is free. There's no, you're not going to click through and have, you know, a screen pop up and say, okay, give us your credit card. None of that's there. Plus, we have two guides on our staff. Kevin Harris is the executive director and Trey Brush. And uh, all you got to do is, is go online through the website, and they'll get on the phone with you. Uh, they'll walk you across the creek. They'll, they'll show you which rocks to step on to get from one side to the other. 
uh, it, it, we've made it. We, we find churches that are doing this. have been doing it two years, three years, and we didn't even know because mm. they downloaded all of our information, launched it, and and, it's make, and made it work. So it's, it's there. So your books, your books aren't free, but your system is. That's correct. But every all the proceeds from the books go to support radical mentoring. I, I don't I don't take anything out of them. I mean, it's a vast royalty stream, but you know. It goes to the Lord, man. Man, I I appreciate that because when we founded Men in the Arena, I've written nine books, seven of them are curriculum, and we wrote this org, we built this organization, and I don't own the books or the speaking rights. So when people hire me to speak or people want buy a book, I don't I don't want that money. It goes into the organization. I think that's wise, and also it it prevents uh, guys like you and I from being rock stars. I don't want to be that guy. Right. I'm with you. I, I've been, I'm a friend who is a very, very well-known author. Uh, I mean, like huge. And it, it just, it, it's just such a hard thing to listen to him speak or to read his book. And you say, what's the real motive here? You know, is the motive to help you or sell another book, you know? And, and, I'm, and, and it, all the ways of a man are right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the motive. Yeah. And I, I have I have an antique scale here in my in my home because I always want to. Uh, God loves us so much that He can accept the fact that we have mixed motives. Yeah, and He doesn't rule us out because we we get a little bit more selfish at times and maybe a little bit more eleemosynary at other times. But man, we get in big trouble when we start trying to guess at somebody's motive. Yeah. And so when, as you have done, when I take that profit uh, piece out of writing a book, then it's all free. Everybody can know that the, the motive behind it is not to make money for myself, but it's man. to help somebody. Our hearts are aligned, man. I really, really appreciate. It. So I have a question for you. I know our guys are listening to this right now, asking this question. So. You talked about Jesus and his mentoring of the disciples. How would you? How do you see mentoring different from discipleship? I I think the original uh, design that Jesus had for his guys was mentoring, and of course, you get into splitting hairs on definitions here. But yes, Jesus Jesus mentored these guys in a whole life way. You know, he had engagement with Peter, with his mother-in-law. Uh, he he answered questions about taxes. Um, you know, his 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 deal was not just focused on scripture. We as men came along and we made disciple made it into discipleship, and we turned it into a course or a curriculum that says, okay. Study the, these these uh, verses or books or chapters in the Bible, and let's talk about how to apply them. And we narrowed it down, I think, to, to very much a church centric, spiritual uh, spiritual in the sense of the of biblical. Now, again, it, if you're living a whole life for Jesus, then you can't separate stewardship from spirituality. Everything you do in your life is spiritual. If your motive is spiritual, it's spiritual. If your motive is secular, it's secular. Mm-hmm. Secular. You can see in your past for a huge church, but if you look at it through the lens of a CEO, then you're doing a secular endeavor. It's not spiritual. So I just think in our culture, particularly, mentoring is 
a word that has a lot more traction with people. It's not uh, labeled with with all of the stuff that's attached to uh, the to, to church and Christianity. And I mean, we've got a pretty bad brand out in the world these yeah. days. Yeah. And, and so mentoring, everybody wants a mentor. Yep. And uh, when, when guys see the opportunity to be in a group with other up and coming leaders and to, to be in a group with a, a guy that's respected from his church or his community, meeting in that guy's home, realizing he has almost unfettered, unfettered access to this guy for a season. It's a very compelling thing. Whereas if, you know, I go to any church in America and say, we're going to have a discipleship uh, series that starts next Tuesday Please be there. I'm going to have more empty seats and I'm going to have filled seats. And the and and you're you're not going to often attract the guys who most have the most potential for upside in the kingdom. If you and that sounds judgmental, but I mean people are just they're somewhere between experienced and worn out when it comes to discipleship courses. You know that's really good. I'd never thought of it that way. So what I'm hearing you say is. Mentoring is holistic in its approach. Jesus said, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Luke 2.52, we read that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor in God and man. So he grew physically, socially, mentally, and um, what was that? Spiritually. And so what you're saying is mentoring is holistic in its approach, in its its worldview or its view of life, where discipleship tends to be more one-sided, focused on the spiritual side. Is that what I'm hearing? That's what, yes. Okay. I, that that is, I might have to change my terminology because of that statement. I I really really like that uh, because it does because guys come in who I meet with and you meet with and they they're like hey I love Jesus but my marriage is falling apart, or I love Jesus right. or I'm but I'm morbidly obese or I love Jesus and I've got a wife over here who's dying. How do I you know and and we have to look at this beyond. I don't want to I don't want to under spiritualize here, but we have to look beyond discipleship to something bigger that God is doing in the mix. We are so influenced by our heroes. You know, who was your hero? Who was your spiritual hero growing up? Was there somebody in in your life that you looked at and you said, man, I want to be like that guy when I get to be his age. Dick Butkus. (laughs) I wasn't a Christian. Dick, but Jack Lambert. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I get it. And I, I didn't, I had none. I had, you know, the, yeah. the, pre- the preacher who baptized me was not a spiritual hero to me. He didn't have a life that I really admired. I mean, he, he, he was just this guy with this greasy hair that preached every Sunday, and then he ran off with the church secretary. So, <laughs> I mean, seriously. So uh, I, the, the idea behind radical mentoring, I'm nowhere near perfect, but I'm real. Yeah. And so I Sit around these, and the number one thing in these groups, and, and I think the number one thing in any mentoring uh, concept, is tra- not just transparency, but vulnerability. Agreed. It's not just, hey, look, let me tell you my stuff, but it's, let me tell you my stuff, and let me tell you where I'm still broken. Here's where I'm still mm. not surrendered. Here's where I keep picking it back up again, you know, that kind of thing. And when you get eight guys plus a mentor or, or two mentors at the table, and everybody tells their story. Everybody shares their dark corners. You create intimate friendships and community in three months. It can take thirty years to 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 construct without the intentionality of a of a group or with a without a process. 
Did you read Earl and Sandy Wilson's book, uh, Restoring the Fallen? No, I haven't. Oh, because you just kind of quoted it. You said, no dark corners. They talk about unswept corners. And so I thought, oh, that's really powerful. So, well, I appreciate this. I, I'd like to get a hold of your book, Radical Mentoring, and get you back on the show and talk about this. I think this is a, a wonderful concept. But uh, let's dive into your book, if you if you don't mind. I know that's a hard transition. No, not at all. <laughs> but uh, by the way, by the way, that radical mentoring is a book that doesn't exist yet. But the one you might want to look at is mentor like Jesus. That's the one. Sorry. Yeah, I yeah, got it's okay. <laughs> maybe I, maybe that was a prophetic statement for your next book. <laughs> hey, maybe so you should write it. <laughs> no, man, I don't want to steal your. That's your. That's your ministry. So hey, uh, on page eight of your book, uh, what radical husbands do? You, you, you again. You're very open and, and and vulnerable with the dark corners of your story. You said, "quote I had to take action." So basically, your wife had left you like you'd shared. She came back on a one day at a time basis. That th- that contract, and you quote, you said this: "I had to take radical action. I had one day to win her heart." That win got me another day. And you start off your book saying that you've been hanging on to your marriage. You said this earlier uh, for for the past 45 years, or I think you said 37 years, but you're now at 50 years of marriage. So walk us through, uh, because we have a lot of guys listening right now that are hanging by a thread. Walk us through what you mean by hanging by a thread and tell us a little bit more about your marriage. And I know you've shared a little bit so far. Well, I, I, I think that um, most men, including myself, don't take responsibility for their marriages. Mm-hmm. And what I realized uh, when, when Miriam left was that I had been way more committed to my job than I had to been to my marriage. It's a big deal. And I, there was no intentionality to being a good husband. I didn't study my wife. I, I didn't sacrifice a lot for her. She did her, her thing to raise the kids, take care of the house kind of thing. I was working 60, 70 hours a week, traveling a lot. And we, we kind of had the, the roles established but I was doing nothing to pour into her or to give her a reason to love me. And I just took her completely for granted. And, and, you know, most John Ritchie, my friend that I quote often says, guys don't change from light. They change from heat. Ooh, write that down. That's so good. Is that good or what? Yeah. Whoa. I'm going to remember that one. John Ritchie. yeah, he, he's he's a brilliant guy. He's 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 sort of a mentor to me here in Atlanta. But but the the heat of of looking around at my house with my wife gone and seeing these wonderful children and I, I hadn't really been a bad dad, but I was not emotionally engaged with them the way that I should have been. And so here I am with my kids for a week and I didn't know it was gonna be a week, it just turned out that way. And I realized that I needed to get after it. And, and with her coming back for a day, literally, I just, I just had to start paying attention. And really, that's, that's, that's what uh, Radical Husbands is about, is paying attention. And the other thing, you know, and, and this is early in the book, women, women need the security 
of not just hearing, not just believing, but knowing that their husbands are in it. Yes. And, and when she came back, my credibility had been zero when she left. When she came back, I looked her in the eye and I said, listen, I am yours exclusively for the rest of my life. Wow. Wow. Take it. Take it to the bank. I can't make you stay. I can't make you love me. But I can tell you, leaving you will never happen. Divorcing you will never happen. I'm in it. And, and, and she knew that I meant that. And I think that's, that's one of the problems that we have in our culture because we've made divorce so easy. And, and people don't even get married anymore because they, they don't want to have the mess of going through divorces. And uh, so the commitment element of marriage has is, is gotten really, really thin. Mm. Uh, my favorite analogy uh, regarding marriage came from a friend of mine, uh, really my first real mentor. He said, if the car you have today is the only car you could ever have for the rest of your life, how much time and attention would you pay that car? Would you take care of it? Would you change the oil? Would you maintain it on time? Would you pamper it? Uh, That's so good. Yeah. Better question. Better question is how much time would you spend on the internet looking at other cars that you could never own? Oh, stop. (laughs) How much time would you spend in a dealership kicking the tires? You know, (laughs) none. And, And here's the beauty now that I'm almost 70 and been married 50 years. I've got a classic... You know, I've taken really good care of it for the last 37 years, and now it's a classic, and it's priceless, and you can't get it anywhere else. And if guys could just grasp just how long long-term is and, and play for the long-term, it changes the whole game. And, and that starts with making that commitment that says, nothing you will ever do will cause me to walk away from you. Nothing. Wow. Well, you know what you, so in the same spirit on page 26 of your book, you wrote this and I'm going to, this is kind of in the same line, the same spirit of what you just said, quote, until your wife is the only focus of your attention and romantic energy, you won't have any chance of winning her heart or keeping it over time. So with that in, in mind, Reggie, will you explain your analogy uh, your parallel, uh, your parable between marriage and burning the ships. Yes, the uh, it used to be that a guy would graduate from high school and he would uh, find his the love of his life, but there would always be this girl from eleventh grade that he took to prom that was always kind of hovering in the back of his mind, like you know, gosh, if this ever went south or if Susie died, you know, I'd go back and Alice would be the one. I just know. And even and when it really gets tough, you're thinking, man, I wish I'd marry Alice. Okay. Today, with technology and, and portable porn and everything else, we build these, these ships that are not just Alice from 11th grade. They're composites of the last 15 porn sites we visited that tells us, you know, that this woman exists out there that will do anything you want as many times as you want, wherever, whenever you want. And that person does not never has existed. 
Mm-hmm. And so what what I say for, to men is you have to burn to burn those ships. So you cannot. You have to have an exclusive relationship, exclusive focus on your wife. And that means if the ship's imaginary, you've got to get out of porn, whatever it takes to get out of porn and stop constructing this imaginary woman. If there is a Facebook friend that, that our Facebook person that you go to look at every now and then, you got to cut that out. You got to end it. You got to take all your time and attention off of those alternative paths because that's like spending time at the dealership looking at a car that you can never, mm-hmm. ever, ever have. Well, you know, Reggie, our friend uh, David Dusick, I don't know if you know David. He's in the Florida area. He's got a, a ministry called Rough Cut Men. He's written a book called Rough Cut Men. He's got a great ministry in churches, and uh, it's movie-based. Uh, but he said something in our podcast just last week, and we've talked about this a lot. We talk about purging social media of all of your ships is there Mm -hmm. go into social media and just purge it hundreds and hundreds of old girlfriends or women you don't know and i have a policy that i won't even add a woman in i won't when i get a request i just delete her i delete the woman Mm -hmm. uh generally speaking if it's a youth group kid or something from back way when i will but generally speaking i delete them so but you said in your book along the same lines on page 29 you asked men and you you ask you ask them repeatedly if there are any ships in their life specifically and I love this I love this question you ask does your ship know she's your ship and then you go on to say does the other woman know she's the other woman and then you ask the men where might some of these other ships be anchored and so that's a great question does your ship guys know she's a ship can you walk us through that well, I, I found very few men that don't have a backup plan. <laughs> Powerful. Know, there's a there's just a backup plan, and and I, I think for years I had one. It was just it was it was vague, but it wasn't a, it didn't have a name. But most men that I if I really can get inside their noggins and ask those kinds of questions, they have a backup plan. And, and I think it just takes energy uh, away from uh, from from your current reality and from the person that you committed your whole life to. Mm. So I, I guess the, the 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 main point there is just you've got to scrub it one hundred percent. You don't leave a corner of the operating room unwashed, you know, because yeah. there's just there's just no room for that. And I believe the beauty of marriage can only be experienced when there is an exclusive relationship between a husband and a wife. And I can't control the wife part of it. Yeah. I can only control my part. That's powerful. Well, you know, you, you just mentioned getting inside their noggins, getting inside a man's noggin. Well, you got inside mine here, uh, not, not in a bad way, but I started screaming and shouting and yelling, yes, finally, you tell your readers in your book what radical husbands do. And I love this to quote, shake them out of their okay marriages. And my thought was, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here. What's wrong with an okay marriage? Isn't it better than a crappy one? Talk us through the okay marriage dilemma. Well, men often feel powerless in their marriages. They mm. they, they they get frustrated. They get rejected. They don't have sex as often as they wish. Uh, they don't feel like they have control of the purse strings the way they wish. They, they don't enjoy hanging around with their mother-in-law. They get competitive with, 
with uh, sisters-in-law and uh, even competitive with their kids. There's all this, all this stuff that's so easy to distract men from loving their, their wives. I think men are, are often uh, carry around a lot of defeat in their, in their hearts about marriage. It hasn't turned out the way they hoped. They don't have as much sex as they thought they should, they would have. Uh, they don't feel they're in control of the finances because she spends somewhat independently. There's the mother-in-law, all, all of all of those things that that just get in the way, and so we settle for. We just say, "Hey, look, she does her thing. I do my thing. She gives me the freedom to play golf on Saturday or go hunting, you know, once a week or whatever." And, and so we just kind of come to a detente. And there's there's a me and there's a she and there's an us. And as long as those don't get too much in each other's way, then it's okay. And what women want and, and what we really know, what we just don't know it, is emotional connection. Mm. We want intimacy. And women thrive on intimacy with their husbands. And you can't have emotional intimacy if you just take a settle for approach. And most of the guys who answer the question and, and, and their perception is my marriage is okay. They rate their marriages somewhere between a four and a seven, wow. as long as they're not in trouble mode. Yeah. And I, I, I want to shake their homeostasis to say, look, <laughs> not only can you have a great marriage, you have it within your power to have a great marriage. But you got to decide you want one and bad enough to make some sacrifices and become intentional and do some stuff that's not going to feel natural and normal and comfortable and, and it has a long-term payback and may suck in the short term. Well, I, yeah. I totally agree with this, Reggie. I mean, when you wrote this book, it really resonates with me, and I think, because I think what you've been thinking for years, I think and agree in the same pro- things. You said, and I agree with this, men do carry a large amount of defeat. And men do settle. And let me let me ask you this. I think that at our core, and I think for Christian men who don't aren't radical about their marriages, they become ledger people. They want they, it's like it's a rule of reciprocation. But in my opinion, Reggie, the most powerful thought in your book is on page 18. This is a short book, guys, 135 pages. You got to read this book where you ask men a great question. And I got to tell you, my first three years of marriage were okay until I decided to outlove and outserve my wife. That's my personal story. Once I did that, it changed. But you ask Ben this question again, guys. In my opinion, most powerful thought in the book. Here's the question, guys. And guys, Joe Blow driving to work. I'm asking you this question right now, and I'm going to ask you this question. But Reggie's going to answer it. Are you willing to give love and not? trade it. Reggie, please explain. I think most of us are traders. It's just, it's just, it's, I don't, I mean, T-R-A-D-E-R. Yeah. Um, we, we, we think if I do X, then, then Y should happen. And if I do X long enough, then more of Y should happen. Um, and, and, but conversely, if she does this, this, and this, then I will do that. And, and, Love is not that way. Love is giving. Love is selfless. What did Jesus get in return for dying on the cross for us? What was the quid pro quo? Zip. Zero. Yep. Nada. Nothing. It was an act of love. And, and oh, my goodness, there's this verse that sort of touches on it. It says, husbands, love your wives 
as Christ, Christ loved the church yes. and gave himself up for it. And wow. I, I, you know, this is sort of against, against the whole uh, title of men in the arena, but I'm sorry, but you know, it, it almost means doormat. Okay. Well, men in the arena actually means out loving, out serving, getting the arena and getting engaged. So it's exactly what you're saying. I, I, I guess I'm the, the, uh, the moose hanging on your wall in the background <laughs> does not, does not lay down with a picture of a doormat. And I, and I don't, I don't, I, I don't truly mean doormat. I don't, I don't mean that. I mean, I, I think we have to respect ourselves. We have to, and we have to really respect our wives. But the point of, as you said, out serving your wife, stop trading, just love her, do things. I, I, I worked so hard at this. I actually initiated taking my wife to home tours, you know, I mean, to home and garden tours. And it's this, I mean, that is so far from what I really enjoy doing, but I knew she loved it. And I knew she wanted me to, 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 to go with her or to take her. And so I just did it and I just did it and I just did it. And now I actually sort of enjoy it, but man, she knows that I'm doing that as an act of love, and it doesn't mean I get laid. It's not a trade. Yeah, I just do it, and she feels that love. And I'm telling you guys, the more that your wife feels loved, the healthier she's going to be, and the more she's going to want to love you, love your children, love Jesus. I mean, her her heart being full will overflow in love in every arena of, of her existence. That's really powerful, man. Uh, you know, it, it got me thinking about a quote. You, you quoted George Washington Carver, and if I'm not mistaken, he's the inventor of peanut butter. Is that true? No, that's one of his discoveries. He invented, two un, he invented 267 other uses for the peanut and he said, which is so powerful, and I want you to ex expand on this. He said about the peanut, but I think this applies to marriage, anything will give up its secrets if you love it enough. Will you embellish upon that? Well, it goes back to the singular focus on your wife. Yes. You, know, if you, it, you can't love some, someone and judge them at the same time. Mm -hmm. You can't minister to someone that you judge. Jesus didn't uh, the beautiful thing about Jesus' life was, you know, he, he, he loved people. He didn't judge them. He accepted them. And in marriage, when you choose to love your wife and you just don't judge her, just love her. Um, one of the things I teach my guys in my group, and this is, this is so, so important is when, when, when you're interacting with your wife, uh, don't, try to guess her motive mm. uh, and mm. don't don't take things personal more than anything else is learning to say why did she say that you don't know why she said that you don't know sometimes it's titch and relieving sometimes it's goal achieving sometimes she's trying to help you sometimes she's trying to take care of herself but the most important thing is don't take it personal half the things that my wife says strike me wrong 
because she's not thinking about me. She's just yeah. trying to, you know, like you said, you'd clean, you'd clean the counter. And I'm like, I, I want to take that personal. And like, she's not tried to tell me I'm a bad person. She just wants the counter clean, you know? Yeah. And so the less I take what she says personal, the, the better we get along. So I think that loving your wife, uh, giving grace and staying becoming a student of your wife, looking for things about her that you that you can learn to admire that maybe you were judgmental of before and 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 not trying to change her. You know, the worst recipe for maritable marriage uh, misery is to try to change each other. Well, nobody short of Jesus, nobody gets changed and nobody wants to be changed by another person. I think every man should have a Ph.D. in their wife. Period. Yes. They should know what brings life out of her. Uh, I love that you said become a student of your wife. You're talking about judging her, but in your book, I'm going to rephrase it. In your book, you said it's often harder to accept someone than to love them. And what I hear you saying is when we're judging our wives, we're not accepting them. And so is that what you also mean? I think the second most powerful part of your book is right here. Is that what you also mean when you tell men to drop, quote, drop their expectations? Can you explain that you know what it means to um, for a man to drop his expectations in marriage uh, and uh, stop building a case against his wife? Is another quote. The anathema of marriage is expectations. Whoa. Period. Can you say that it's again? The, That's powerful. The anathema of marriage is expectations. Wow. If if I want uh, if if I want to ruin my marriage. I just set a bunch of expectations for my wife and start holding her accountable for trying to live up to my expectations Mm. because she's going to fail and my expectations will change and she's not going to know it because I'm not going to tell her because I use one word for every 10 she uses and, and vice versa. So dropping my expectations just says, take her as she is Mm -hmm. love her just like she is. If it, if there's an issue that we need to talk about, sit down with her in a collaborative way and say, look, we agreed that we could handle our finances better if you use this credit card and let's pay it every 30 days. And I noticed that that this other credit card has some charges on it. Is there, is there something different or, or can we, so do we need to change or can we stick with that plan? Non-accusatory, non-judgmental, whatever. But let that be the, the gross exception. Just accept her. You know, if she likes chili on her hot dog, let her have chili on her hot dog. Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> I, I, in my group this year, I have four divorce guys out of eight. And if you go back, every single one of them can unpack things in their first marriages <clears throat> that caused it to fall apart that they had expectations of their wives and they ultimately judged their wives, held those things against them. The wives felt the rejection and their wives bailed. If gosh, if these, you know, I bet a lot of guys wish they could do it over again. I'm pretty fortunate because I've been with the same woman hanging on by a thread one day at a time for almost 28 years now. But, uh, (laughs) you know, she's been willing to accept my failures and to walk with me through that. And so I really do appreciate that. So you said just now, if she likes chili on her hot dog, let her like chili on her hot dog. 
And that goes along with something you said in verse uh, page 52 that we've already alluded to, but I want you to unpack it. I want you to unpack it for us a little bit better. You said, radical husbands put away their selfishness and figure out what their wives love. Then they love it too. That to me, uh, in, in, two th- in 2005, my wife said, we're going to, uh, you're going to laugh at this because the elk on the wall. It's not a moose, by the way. It, but thank you for it, give me that compliment. She said, "We're going to go." <laughs> I can only see the neck. I can't okay. See the rest I, well, of hey, it. I appreciate it. She said, "But I wouldn't gonna, know the difference anyway." That's okay. She said, "We're going to Hawaii for a family vacation," and I said, "In October." She said, "Yeah." I said, "But that's uh, hunting season. In fact, that's mm-hmm. the opening week of hunting season. I don't want to go to Hawaii. I don't like the beach. I don't like hot weather. I don't like to swim." Well, we're going to Hawaii. I said, "Oh no." She goes, "I love the trop. I love it." Well, she took me to Hawaii, and uh, from that day on, we've been addicted to tropical vacations because that brings out the best in her, which mm. brings out the best in marriage. And so I have been trained by my wife. I have to admit, it's training, I guess confess, to love that part of what she loves. But can you unpack this? This, to me, is true agape. Loving what our wives love, and, and and instead of being obstinate and trying to force our wives to love what we love, can you walk us through that? Yeah, I'll give you a real practical one because uh, because probably if statistics hold up, uh, six out of ten guys listening to this podcast, their marriages aren't really all that good right now. They're and not even whatever, okay. Yeah, whatever they rate their marriage, their wives will rate it worse. Statistically, that that holds up. True. So I would say to those guys, and really to all of us, if you want to win your wife's heart back, figure out what she loves and love it. And, and the, the, the number one example of that for me was our kids. When my wife came back, she was still very, very uh, agitated with me and just exhausted with me. And uh, so I, I started, I, I've been with the kids, just me and the kids for a week. So I started I continued what I was doing. I was hanging out with each kid. We were working together to clean up the kitchen after dinner and whatever. And I noticed that when she saw me loving on my kids, she smiled. Mm. So, and, and it was like light came on. If I love what she loves, she's going to love me. And that's not a reason, exclusive reason to love your kids, but it's a principle. And as I mentioned, when I go on these garden tours, that's something that she loves. So I go with her and a little bit of that brand transfers over from the garden tour to me. Yeah. That's that's, that's the whole marketing principle of transference, which is not in the Bible, but that's why people wear Air Jordan shoes is because it makes them connect with somebody that can have a 48-inch vertical leap or are used to. 20 years ago. Yeah. Probably not anymore, but yeah. That's really powerful, man. So I think if you study your wife and you realize what she really loves and enjoys doing, if you can tastefully and in an authentic way join her in that and engage with her in the thing that she loves, then she's going to feel that love, and you're probably going to get a little bit of that reflected back on you. Well, which kind of goes along with a, a phrase that you talked about in your book that I thought was very powerful. There, there are four or five phrases in your book that you use that to me were very powerful. I never heard them before. And th- and your book was very applicable to marriage. You gave guys something to do instead of uh, pie in the sky stuff. 
And one of the things that you tell guys to do in loving their wives and loving what they love is something you call five feet in five minutes. Can you walk us through what that means? Yeah, it, and this this is very contextual because uh, you know I wrote this from a perspective of of an old fart like myself. I I always come home from work and re-entered her space. And uh, nowadays, lots of people work from home and don't you know, they they either have offices in their home or whatever. So it's you got to contextualize this. But the point is, when you first enter her world. Uh, after being doing what you've been doing, pay attention to the first five minutes. And what I have my mentor, mentees do is go into their, into her personal space, i.e., within five feet of her, and spend the first five minutes paying exclusive attention to her. Mm. Don't rifle through the mail. Don't uh, go to the refrigerator and start fixing a snack. And this is a tough one. But don't pick up the kids and start playing with them. I know it sounds like it might contradict what I said a minute ago, but kids need to understand that marriage is first. Yes, and so thank you. Uh, a, a lot of guys have have implemented couch time, which says uh, if the kids come running in when dad gets home, okay, this is couch time. That means you guys got to go wait your turn. You go sit on the couch, and I, while I talk to your mom, and for the first five minutes, you say non-sexual touches. Physical, uh, you can hug her, squeeze her shoulder, whatever. Quick story, and I, I referenced this in the book. One of my mentees in my group, seven, second group years ago, a little boy at the time was six years old. He's now in college. <clears throat> and he watched this dynamic. And one day, uh, <clears throat> my mentee came home, and he's doing his five feet for five minutes. And Jackson, the son, comes over, starts unloading the dishwasher. And the kid's like a kid. And so he asked him afterwards, he said, why were you, why'd you unload the dishwasher? He said, because I wanted you to have more time to talk to mommy. Love you that think story. Kids aren't, you think kids aren't smart? I mean, and so, so that's what I mean by that. So, you know, giving her uh, undistracted, totally focused time, uh, voting that first period of time when you walk back in the door exclusively to her. Well, I just wrote down while you were speaking – I think this would be a great bumper sticker. I, I'm surprised Forrest Gump didn't come up with this. Wife is greater than children. Your Ooh. wife has to be greater than the kids. If we don't get that right as Christian men, we will have an okay marriage. And what we're telling our kids is, I've actually told, I have three sons, so they, don't get a, they aren't as sensitive as the girls possibly, but I said, if I have to take a bullet, guys, it's going to be for your wife. And as much as it would break my heart, you need to know she's more important because I have her forever. I have you for 25 years. I have her forever. And so that's what you're saying. Now, along that line, I have one more thing I want to run by. There's, your book is it's so packed with stuff in 135 pages, but I, I don't want our guys to walk away without getting this one point. And you use a tug-of-war analogy uh, when it comes to marriage. you got the wife on one end of the rope. You've got ourselves as the husbands on the other end of the rope and you say something radical. Will you walk us through that statement? Well, I ripped this off from a guy named uh, Tom Stanfield, who is in my mentoring group this year, by the way. Uh, and he, he, this is actually copyright, copyrighted in a sales training program he has, Oh, but it's the concept of drop the rope. <clears throat> and if you think about interaction with your wife, 
uh, sometimes we feel like we're being set up, but she, but um, she will say something that's a little bit of a tug. My wife did it this morning. Um, she was talking about uh, an appointment that she's trying to work around some other family stuff, and she was explaining why she was being difficult about it. And she said, <clears throat> she said, you know, I just wish I could have a little bit more compassion from you. Mm. Ooh, ooh. Now, that was a tug on the rope. So what do I do with that? Do I push back? And if I ask, if I reply with a question like, what do you mean by that? Then I, I, I've, I've jerked the rope. Uh, even worse, if I say, I'm passionate toward you, or I'm just trying to help you work it out. You know, I, I defend. But, and I've learned these phrases since I wrote the book. These are the, every guy should write these two phrases down. Phrase number one is, you're probably right. If we could train ourselves to just, if we know, we understand the words that were just said, if we could just train ourselves to say, you're probably right and shut up she will keep talking and she will explain to herself what she meant and you won't have the fight. The other set of words is, could you talk a little bit more about that? Could you talk a little bit more about that? And it, you know, there again, that's giving her the opportunity to explain further without feeling like she's being cross-examined. And, and it just, when you use those phrases and you, you drop the rope, you get her to talk more or you don't, you acknowledge by you're not going to be contentious by saying you're probably right. It takes all the energy out of that comment, both for her and for you. So this things like that, that you train yourself to do just changes, raises the quality of marriage by huge, huge amounts. Hey Reggie, I I feel like I've been in one of your mentor groups right now. I feel like I'm a mentee. I don't I don't I don't know how else to say this. I feel like I'm sitting at your feet right now. Yep. Uh, I might have to fly out there and join the group. Uh, this has been so rich and so powerful. And I have to confess, man, this interview and your book really surprised me. <laughs> I I read a ton of books and I I'm around a lot of unbelievable human beings, and uh, I have been humbled by what you had to say today. So thank you so much. Well, I'm honored to be here. I, I wrote it to help guys um, to, 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 to save and improve their marriages. That's my whole motive. And, uh, and, and all, there's a website called Radical, I think it's Radical Husbands. Uh, and there are 12 specific exercises on there that uh, like men can group up and do these 12 exercises like once a month. And it's, it's, it's following the model that Jesus gave which is sort of core to radical mentoring is the idea of here's a challenge, go out with this challenge, practice it, come back and debrief. And so these 12 exercises sort of harmonize with the chapters in the book. And so if a guy's just wanted to take just marriage and just wanted to try to work on their marriage, that's a resource. It's also free. Man, so I, I really appreciate right, it. Right. I appreciate that. Hey guys, what's next? What action step are you going to take because of today's podcast? We need to get our boots on the ground. Uh, I could have chose 20 things, but here's what I want you to do today. I want you to make a list of the top five things your wife loves. Then I want to see how many of those things that you can start loving with her. Are you engaged 
in loving what she loves without an expectation of reciprocation, without being a ledger person? Are you willing to just love her where she's at and love the things that she loves? Until next time, feel the wet sound of the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Drop the rope. Grind it out. And be a man. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for around the world and find out the type of dad you are.